Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Dr. Carol V. Evans, author of Providing Stability and Deterrence, the U.S. Army and Indo-PACOM, featured in Parameter Spring 2021 issue. Dr. Evans is the director of the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College and a lecturer at the NATO Center of Excellence Defense Against Terrorism in Turkey. Hello, Carol. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on Decisive Point. And thank you also for your contribution to our 50th anniversary issue. Your article really helped set us off on the right foot. In it, you discuss some existing and emerging challenges that DOD must face in the Indo-Pacific region. Could you elaborate on those, please, for our listeners? Sure. Thank you. One of the things I felt that was really needed was to look a little bit beyond just the existing kinds of conflicts that everyone is familiar with. So obviously we have the current and ongoing crisis between India and Pakistan, although that situation is getting better with time. We have the ongoing conflict between China and India on the line of control. And we have the emerging crisis in Myanmar. So among these three different areas, those are areas where I think the United States has a likelihood of having to intervene in some type of diplomatic or other types of measures. But then we have other types of crises that are emerging as well. And some of these are being generated by resource competition. So for example, the need for China through the Belt and Road Initiative to secure a lot of its supply chains for rare earth minerals, for its energy supplies, for food, etc. And if we think about some of the conflicts that might be occurring in future in the region, we're likely to see the supply chain issues and certainly competition over water, which is a, a key component, both in particular for China and for India. We're also talking about other types of emerging insurgencies and conflicts with the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan. Although that's a CENTCOM issue, there is a role potentially for India, and that then falls into the Indo-PACOM arena. I'm also looking at the expansion of China militarily, and that was one of the things I just pointed out. And most, I think, of your readers are very familiar, but China's modernization program, particularly its use of A2D2 capabilities, anti-access denial in the South China Seas, the build-up of the Spratleys and other islands and fortification activities that is destabilizing the arena, has really drawn a lot of interest, particularly by the U.S. Navy and other regional navies in terms of securing a free and open Indo-Pacific. So those are you know, key areas. But there are also some underlying aspects that beyond sort of usual military analysis we haven't focused as much on, and that is the growing expeditionary capabilities of China, both through additional deployments well beyond the Pacific into the Indo part of the Indian Ocean. So we have the establishment of the PLAN base in Djibouti, and we have, through the Belt and Road Initiative, the ability for China to build up a series of logistic ports, potentially for you know, future naval deployments. Right now, they're mostly commercial ports, either under companies, private sector and state-owned enterprises that China manages. But they're controlling, as a result, either through leasing or port operations, what we call the string of pearls. So a number of ports all the way from the Malacca Strait, so in Malaysia, in Hambantota, in Sri Lanka, 
in Gwadar in Pakistan because it's right adjacent to India in the Indian Ocean. And as I mentioned before, Djibouti. So the use of economic means through investments in port infrastructure has opened up a capability perhaps for the future for the PLAN and PLA to utilize. So those are, I think, some key strategic factors that are near-term and far-term, but they're going to reshape the geostrategic balance in the region. Thank you for that explanation. So to meet these challenges, you suggest a two-part action plan, wherein the Army is a joint force enabler in support of what you call a ring of fires concept. Would you describe that concept in a little more detail for us, please. The Ring of Fires concept, if I can just back up a little bit, sort of reveal some of my former background from my years working with Third Fleet. And back in the 1990s, we were really interested in utilization of naval fires for land targets, particularly mobile targets back in the day. And the issue, too, using naval fires was you know, which weapon on which target and how do we coordinate the utilization of those fires. So when I was reading current thinking, military thinking, and particularly from the army thinking in terms of what is the army's role in Indo-PACOM, I was really using that prior knowledge and history to think about how we could leverage army fires for the Indo-PACOM region. One of the issues that I was struck by as well in reviewing the Army's role within Indo-PACOM was it's still fairly traditionally centered on the use of land power in a Taiwan contingency or in South Korea, and that most of our forces, as a consequence, are located in the western part of the Pacific. When we're really thinking about Indo-PACOM, the PACOM is well covered, and a number of studies, including work here at SSI, and a major important IRP that was done by one of our scholars, Nate Freer, really discussed that the current posture is not well suited across the Indo-PACOM arena. So when I was thinking about what could be a better role in the future, and again, I was appreciative of the opportunity to think prospectively with this piece, I thought about leveraging the Army's tremendous investment in its own fires capabilities. And if you think about that, the Army has ATACMs, its mid-range, and we've just heard a breaking defense piece a few days ago, the first-time release of the hypersonic capabilities. And we're talking about a range of 1,700 miles, 2,000 plus kilometers. So this is a huge capability that the Army can bring to the Indo-PACOM. But where will it be deployed? Right now, all of those sort of operational concepts are focused, as I said, really more on a Taiwan kind of contingency. When I'm thinking about Indo-PACOM, and I'm thinking about in future, where are China's vulnerabilities? I need to go back to that threat picture that I first painted, which is China's expansion into the Indian Ocean, potentially expeditionary warfare. But leveraging the geography of the region and leveraging our alliance structure to deter China. And because China's main vulnerability then is actually in the Indo part, it is in the Straits of Malacca, the Lombok, Strait and the Sunda Strait. All of China's, whether it's naval shipping, merchant shipping, have to go through those straits. And China acknowledges that this is a huge vulnerability for its own part. So what I proposed, returning to my Ring of Fires concept, is to deploy that arc of fires everywhere from off 
the east coast of India from the Andaman and Nicobar Islands in a big arc all the way surrounding through Japan. And there's a, a good map that is provided in the parameters piece. And being able to deploy a mix of fires then within this region would send a very strong deterrent message to China because we could absolutely take out any of their means of economic survival because of our control over those maritime straits. So this is a very new concept for the army because we're always thinking about the application of land power as opposed to the army being used for maritime precision strike. It could be used for both and we hope we would never get an engagement directly with China, but the deterrent value from ability to launch maritime strike, and if you think so if you were to launch hypersonics from our partners, say, in Australia, that targets most of the coverage of the Malacca, Sindhu, and Lombok Straits. But there are other partners, too, potentially that come on board. So that was my prospective concept. It brings the army in a very different domain than its, if you like, traditional comfort zone. But it's not something entirely new because the Marine Corps under General Berger has also been looking at maritime strike capabilities. But of course, the Marines have a much smaller footprint and they don't have the range of weapons that the Army has invested in. So I think together between the Army being the leading focal point in conjunction with Marine Corps and even naval fires, that would be a prodigious capability. And I see a very strong role then for the Army as an enabler. Thank you for that clarification. Also, you talk about things the Army can do to support multilateral partner building efforts, such as the Quad. What role do you see for the Quad itself, and how can the Army help? When I talked about the Ring of Fires, one of the things that the Ring of Fires does is it forces us, U.S., to operate in areas that we don't traditionally necessarily have strong relationships. Of course, I already mentioned Australia, Japan, they are Quad members, and they're also one of our five anchor partners in the region. We have strong treaties with both of them. One of the things that struck me as I was looking out at deploying a ring of fires, the really key centripetal member of the quadrilateral dialogue, as it's known, India, US, Japan, Australia, was the complete, almost lack of mention in any of the army military strategic documents about India. And I found that rather surprising. And again, it goes back to the fact that we are so focused on Western Pacific and our traditional alliances with South Korea, with Japan, Philippines, etc. But if we look to the Indo part, and we look where I would like to deploy that ring of fires, India really is the dominant power in the region. It has the largest landmass that it can leverage against China and also has the largest army. In the Indo-PACOM arena, the relationships have been very much focused upon military cooperation centered between the navies. So again, as I was thinking prospectively and looking outward, this is a huge growth area, I think, for the army. We have to move beyond some of the relationships we already enjoy in the region, but even ones that we take for granted, for example, with Japan, a key member, and in fact, the initiator of the Quad, we need to do a lot more to buttress that relationship. And in fact, here at SSI, I'm leading a project on the Quad Plus and what that future might look like. And in speaking with Japanese analysts that are very close to the Ministry of Defense, they too have indicated that they feel that the relationship between especially the Army could be more robust. And so this is an area that I think the Army has an opportunity as it talks about alliances in the region to address. And while Japan is 
we have already established those relationships, our relationship with India has been very fragile and often uncertain. And it's a pivotal point, I think, in time, because while India has emphasized strategic autonomy, trying to avoid being closely allied with the United States, it necessarily is now looking at threats that has emanated from China and is looking to partner a little bit more closely with the United States. And we've seen tremendous movement in that relationship through defense sales, through several foundational agreements that allow for better intelligence sharing, and particularly, again, in the maritime domain. But as I returned back to what would be the Army's role with Quad Partners, for India, because I think the Quad will go where India goes, it's important to buttress that relationship through Army-to-Army cooperation. And that is an area that has had not much development. We've relied on a very small bilateral exercise called Yudo Abbas, and it's been an important one, but very limited in size and scope. And so I pointed out in the article some areas where I thought better collaboration for the future to lay that kind of foundation could be helpful. One was in intelligence sharing. And it was nice to see an article that just came out in War in the Rocks by General Flynn and by General, I think it's Potter, Laura Potter, our Intel Army lead, both talking about the importance of Intel sharing and a possible area of further coordination. And as you know, General Flynn is about to become user PAC, so I think this is all positively leading in a forward direction. So back to intelligence sharing, first piece, another piece I identified in the parameters article was PME education. And we, again, back to SSI, have a very good relationship, emerging relationship with a number of our counterparts in India, SMASL. It's part of the, if you like, the Strategic Studies Institute at their National Defense University. And we are collaborating on looking at army to army and other types of military cooperation and a whole other sort of long set of research agenda pieces where we can assist each other. One of the things that the Indian military has identified, too, is through PME, helping them understand what we mean by jointness and all domain operations. The Indian military operates in a very siloed function. And as they look ahead to confronting China's capabilities and their increasing ability to operate in a joint level, the Indians know they've got a lot of catch-up. And so I think this is an important area where our ability to inform and explain how we derived at our joint operating concepts could be very useful. That can emerge into training and other types of exercises at a much larger rate. But I wanted to focus on an area that I think has been missed or underemphasized. So that PME point was, was important. Tactically, at the tactical level, there have been a lot of studies within India on their own special operation forces. Because India is really focused largely their army on insurgency and border control, they haven't utilized themselves as a kind of land power expeditionary force in the way that the United States has. As a consequence, a lot of their special operations forces don't have the same set of expertise and capabilities that the way we have evolved. They haven't thought about their SOC as an intel collection platform. And whether we're talking about in the maritime or whether we're talking about land, this is an area that I too felt we could assist tremendously. Whether it's at the PME level through our partners at JSAL, Joint Special Operations University, or whether through exercises and tactics and training, I think that soft dimension could really be a very important area for Army cooperation. So I think I've highlighted a few areas. I could go a lot more into intelligence sharing, but I'll leave it there for now.
Carol, once again, thank you so much for being here this afternoon. We really appreciate your time and we wish you the best of luck moving forward with your other research endeavors. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time.